Good morning. That was pretty good. Pretty good. Okay. Um, one of the first thing I want to do this morning is to thank you for taking care of my family and moving uh, Eric and Jordan and the kids. It seems like it always has to be a hard one, right, George? And, uh, but for all the prayers and the escort, and we had a FaceTime with them last night, and they're just grateful. And they thank you again, too. Secondly, pray for my voice this morning because it's not <laughs> not very good. I th- Nancy and I, maybe you have been going some si- significant spiritual warfare recently, and we can feel it, and it's hitting our throats and everything else. So, I'll do my best. Uh, let's pray, Father. We we're going to look at your word this morning, and it's an appropriate. Uh, word too and seeing the supremacy and the preeminence of our Lord Jesus and we don't think too much in those kind of terms but uh, this is uh, the essential thing that we need to know and so I pray that you would uh, speak through your word and you would speak to our hearts in a way Lord that would make a difference and build the kingdom and draw us ever closer to you I pray this in Jesus name Amen Open your Bibles this morning to um, Colossians 1, verse 15 and, and 23. And if you please stand. Colossians 1, 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Lord, we bless you for these words. May we, Lord, know you more and give you glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. There's a story told of a a charismatic pastor who was delivering a sermon to a group of children in children's church. And he said, boys and girls, what lives in a tree 
eats nuts and has a long bushy tail. And it was quiet for a while and one little boy raised his hand and he said, Pastor, I know you want me to say Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. (laughs) The truth be told, there's a lot of confusion in these days about who Jesus is. Uh, The very name of Jesus stirs emotions today, makes uh, confusion and reactions. Some places, the name of Jesus becomes uh, confrontational. Some places you can't even say Jesus' name. Sometimes you can maybe publicly pray to God, but not publicly pray to Jesus. And when people ask, what, uh, when you ask people what you think, what they think about Jesus, you get a, a variety of perspectives. For some, that he was a good man. Others think he was a prophet or a religious leader. Uh, but always the name causes a reaction of some sort. And why is that? Why? Because Jesus is God. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the presence of God. And so Jesus is controversial because most people would have God to be a mystery and then they can mold God in their own image themselves. During Jesus' day, there was also much confusion about who he was. Even Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? In the years that followed Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven, all kinds of confusion surfaced in the churches. The early church fell into that because they didn't have a Bible. They didn't have volumes of theological information like we do. And so Paul was called by God to go to Colossae to straighten out who Jesus was in the church in Colossae. Confusion still reigns today in the church quite often. Recently, a new church plant planted a church that de-emphasizes Jesus. One of the church founders said, the truth is that the name of Jesus Christ has become for many people offensive and exclusionary. And so we are enabling people to discover God for themselves, maybe through Jesus, maybe through Buddha, maybe through any other kind of way they could find. Now, hopefully that would appall us here as born-again Christians, but actually most of us in some ways, in different ways, we live out our faith in different ways that people don't see Jesus in us at all. Most people want forgiveness of sins. Most people want uh, the cross, but they want the cross because for them it's an opportunity to have a prosperous stress-free, comfortable life. But Jesus doesn't call us to happiness. He calls us to holiness. If Jesus is to be supreme and preeminent in our lives, we must stop asking, what can Jesus do to me? What can the church do for me? What we need to be saying is, how can I live for God? Am I truly living under the Lordship of Jesus Christ? You see, brothers and sisters, we cannot simply add Jesus to our lives. He has to be the center of our lives. This brings us to the book of Colossians, where there's a great deal of false teachings in the church, but the, the main problem they had in Colossae was this. Some people were teaching God, that teaching God that he didn't create the world. And they believed that physical matter 
was evil. And so that meant God cannot create evil. And in believing that physical matter is evil, then they argued he could not have come to earth and become flesh because he would have been evil then. Therefore, they didn't believe that Jesus Christ was God, but rather he was a, Jesus was a good spiritual man or a prophet of God. Now, many may look at these misconceptions and wonder, why does that happen in the church? Well, it happens in the church even today because there's a foundational issue that we pretty much pass off to the side. And that issue is the minimizing and the diminishing of the essential preeminence, the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ as a sovereign God over all things. People don't want to talk about that. To be preeminent means to be surpassing all others, to distinguish beyond all things. And many people of Paul's day, just like today, thought Jesus was important, but he wasn't preeminent. They had given him a place in their life, but not the first place as Jesus demanded. Jesus was prominent to them, but he wasn't preeminent. In our text for today, we see that the apex, the uh, pinnacle of the reality of what Christianity is in its foundation. In Jesus, God is completely and perfectly and fully revealed. In Jesus Christ, the preeminent supremacy of God is all over all in our lives. And Paul puts this to us in two different ways. Number one, the preeminence of Jesus Christ over everything that he has created. And number two, the preeminence of Jesus Christ over all that he has redeemed in his new creation. These are the two things that Paul is going to show us today. So we first, um, oh, excuse me, the hinge verse here between these two things is verse 18. So that in everything he might be preeminent. So we read of this, we read of this first preeminent supremacy of Jesus Christ over creation itself. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So what we're reading here is Jesus is preeminent over all things. All things, all things, all things, all things. He keeps saying it. God's word here proclaims Jesus is preeminent in what's been created with four different truths. The first one is Jesus is God. He is the image of the invisible God. Paul doesn't mince any words. He is the image of God. Now, image is a little bit different for us here. Images for us symbolically, symbolically convey something that we can describe, but it's not true, deep inside the foundation. So put it this way. My wedding ring symbolically uh, represents the fact that by God's mercy, Nancy agreed to marry me. But as powerful as images can be and symbols can be, they simply are representatives. So what that means is my wedding ring doesn't make me married to Nancy. Rather, the wedding ring is a symbol of the fact that I'm married to her. 
The ring doesn't in and itself do anything for us, for me. My wedding ring stands for, it honors deeply the reality of who Nancy and I are together in God. But Jesus is not just a symbol of God. Even it says image, he is God. So what we have here is the word image in Greek is different than our thinking of image. Greek, in the Greek, it is a likeness, manifestation, or replica. So image in Paul's day was like a die or a stamp where you were able to make an exact reproduction. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the precise copy of God because he is God. Uh, he is both represents God and manifests God in the world. He is both the representation and the representative because Christ brings clarity in that way into who God is. When we see Jesus, we see God. In Christ, we see who God is as creator and redeemer. In Christ, we see what God is like, the God of mercy and of love and of grace and of power and holiness and justice. And we also, in Christ, see what God does, the one who sent his son to rescue sinners from the dominion of darkness and bring them into reconciliation with creation and with us on the cross. Jesus said in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In Hebrews 1, we read that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4 speaks of the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus is God, and he always will be God. Amen? Secondly, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, Jehovah Witnesses use this verse in teaching that Jesus was created by God. Therefore, he's not God. But Jesus is more than just the firstborn of creation. We think firstborn in the sense of birth order. But again, the Greek gives us the real picture of this. Instead, it distinguishes, uh, firstborn distinguishes not in birth order, but in precedence, in preeminence, so to speak, in rank, put it that way. So what that means is we see this strongly in the fact that Jacob was not born first, but he was the heir the owner, ultimately. This strongly supported in Psalm 89, where we read that God had appointed David of his firstborn, he says, even though David was the youngest of eight brothers. The verse concludes by calling David the highest of the kings on earth. Jesus is the firstborn that ranked most, hang, most ranked high in creation. Third, Jesus is the creator of all things. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So Jesus is the image of God and the preeminent exalted one over all creation because he is the creator. He's not a, a mere man. Jesus is the one sovereign creator over all things, the creator of those things we can see and the things we cannot. 
And we know that in John 1. John 1, chapter 1 says, Jesus was there at the beginning. He was also the creator. Because we have false teachers then and now that taught that the physical world is evil, they taught that God could have not created the world. They reason that if Christ were God, he would only be God over the spiritual world, not the physical world. But Paul pushes back on that. He, he writes, he, he is over all thrones and dominions and rulers and authority in the heavens and the world, he says. All of those are under the authority of Jesus Christ. The point Paul's making here is that Jesus is sovereign over everything. He's the creator. And not only the creator, he is the one who has the purpose of the creation. Uh, we read here, all things were created through him and for him. So he's, what did, why, was it, why were we created? We're created for him. Revelation 4.11 tells us that the whole host of heaven surrounded the throne of, of Jesus and they proclaimed, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Jesus creates everything. Even the things we make, we think that we've created, created, we haven't created a thing ever. It's always become by the inspiration of the Spirit. Fourthly, Jesus holds all things together and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So, in the midst of war, in unrest, in political division, in economic uncertainty, we must keep in mind that it is Jesus who holds everything together, especially when you're crossing a mountain pass, right? He is before all things, <laughs> and in him all things hold together, praise the Lord. <laughs> Jesus existed before anything else. In John 8, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I have always been. Jesus existed before all things, and then he created all things, and now he holds all things together. To hold together means to prevent something from falling com into complete chaos. But in Christ, Jesus ranks above chaos. He is pre preeminent over all things, at all times, for all reasons. Jesus is not only the creator of the world, he is the spiritual glue and the divine gravity that holds all things in life, everything in the creation together. By him, everything came to be, and by him, things continue to be. Hebrews 1.3 again, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Despite what the media says, Jesus keeps everything from falling apart. He upholds everything by the power of his created word. There's, there is no conflict in Jesus. There's no crisis in heaven. He will be exalted among the nations. No matter what, Jesus is preeminent, sovereign, omnipotent, and he holds all things together. We've seen that Jesus Christ here is preeminently supreme in creation. Now we look at the preeminent supremacy of Jesus Christ over his redeemed new creation. And he is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So what we're seeing here is, is the image of the invisible God entered the sphere of human experience in order to reconcile all things in heaven and all things on earth by the means of a death and a resurrection. What this looks like is God's word here shifts from the old natural creation to the new spiritual creation, like old covenant, new covenant here. So, so the creating God in Christ now is the reconciling God in Christ. Jesus is preeminent over everything he has created, and now we see that he is preeminent over the things that he has redeemed and the things that he has newly created. Another way to say it is he has first place over both the cosmos and the church. Uh, He is the Lord of everything he has made, and he is the Lord of everyone he has saved. God's word continues to, to proclaim these through two different truths. Uh, the first one is Jesus Christ has supremacy over the new creation of his church. And he's the head of the body of the church. Like a, like a grain of sand that irritates an oyster inside of its shell to produce the beauty of a pearl, so is the church born and emerged through the wounded side of our Lord Jesus. It was the irritation of our sin that put him to death and covered our sin with his blood and our souls were turned into beautiful pearls of great value. That's the church. That's the church. Jesus is the beginning, the source, and the head of the church. And so if Jesus is the creator and the head of the church, he is the creator of all things, that means for us that the destinies of both creation and the church are bound together in that God's purpose is that his gospel, his new life, are to be worked out and lived out in his church. They're both together. We're not separate from the cosmos. We're not separate from any of God's purposes. The church does not exist to meet the needs of its members. It doesn't exist to ensure its institutional survival. In Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church. This church belongs to Jesus. This church is not yours. This church is not mine. This church is not ours. This church is here to fulfill the redemptive purpose of Jesus Christ. The creative principle of God and his glory should flourish in the church as it bears fruit by two means, preaching the gospel and living the gospel out. That's our program. That's it. (laughs) That's our program. The creative principle. Since Jesus is the head, the focus of the church is always to be Jesus. The church is not about us. and The church is not about the church. It's about Jesus. Jesus is to be the source of the church's life, and Christ-likeness is to be, be the effect of that. Paul describes here how the headship of Jesus Christ is to be lived out in the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead here. So Jesus is the beginning, which means he's the source. And Christ's resurrection is the firstborn from the dead, is to be the source for a new life in the church. 
So, so the goal of the resurrection is not merely to give hope to those who surrender their lives to Jesus that they might live after they die. That's not the whole goal there. The goal of the resurrection is also for those who surrender their lives to Jesus that they might live out that life while they're here before they die. We don't get it later on. We got it now. What are we doing with it? Jesus rose and dead that in everything, excuse me, Jesus died and rose from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. So Christ is to be uh, preeminent. He's to be supreme in our lives, my life, your life, our families, our church, our work, our play. Everything we do, everything we do is to glorify God, God by sharing the gospel, living out the gospel. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus Christ is the fullness of God, not the partial embodiment, but the fullness. The fullness of God dwells in him, in Christ. Not around, not under, not next to, but in. The fullness of God dwells in him. To dwell to means to take up residence, to live. This points us to the incarnation where in Christ came in human form, in John chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. There you go, the flesh and dwelt. Dwelt among us and we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in chapter 2 of Colossians, we'll, we'll read, for in him is the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So, so God the Father was and is pleased to fully dwell and permanently live in his son, Jesus Christ. And God wants that for us too. And that's, that's what it means to abide, chapter 15. You should abide in me, he says. All the character and personality and attributes of God, his spirit, his word, his wisdom, his power, his joy, his love, his righteousness, his mercy, his grace, his glory, are all revealed and released in the form and the presence and the reality of Jesus Christ. Jesus is to be seen as supreme and preeminent in the lives of those in the church. As we live out the Father's good pleasure in all that fullness, we know for the fullness that John talks of, that from his fullness we have all received what? Grace upon grace. And so, not only does Jesus Christ have supremacy over the new creation of his church, he also has supremacy over the new creation in us. And through him, to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. In these verses, Paul uh, describes the redemptive work of Jesus Christ in reconciling a sinful, lost people back to God. 
As people come to saving faith in Christ, they are reconciled to Jesus through his blood and they become members of his church of which he is the head. And reconciliation here is defined as a restoration of fellowship after its estrangement from our God in the Garden of Eden when it started. The word alienated here implies isolation, loneliness, and a very deep, severe sense of not belonging. Basically, you're kicked out of the family for good. When we are out of relationship with God, brothers and sisters, we are out of relationship with one another too. Sin distances us from God and twists our thoughts and behaviors and producing fear and suspicion of God and of each other, generating the urge to strike out, hurt, and destroy. We read that here, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Reconciliation with Christ breaks that cycle of sin, heals our ruptured relationship with God and with one another, and brings us into the accord of our purpose, to have a holy holiness to us. Paul emphasizes this here, that Jesus alone can do this. Reconciliation, salvation, sanctification do not come from anything that we do. It's all him. Paul says he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. We also read, if you remember in Ephesians, we were saved in order that we might before all of creation showed to be perfect and the whole creation will say glory. Do you feel that? It's out, of, it's out of our league. But someday, when Jesus returns, Jesus will show, manifest all of us in this room as perfect before creation. It's too much to think about. <laughs> what we're reading here is that in Jesus, we have been reconciled back to God to live a life that God wants us to live. If we want to be holy, if we want to have no blemish or accusation in our lives, that doesn't come in the future, that comes now. It comes immediately when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. The goal, God's goal through Jesus Christ is to make us holy and blameless. But while we're still part in a work in progress, God does require a response from us. He says right here, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. We don't just sit there and get it. We have to respond. Brothers and sisters, we must never take our salvation in Jesus Christ for granted. We must never be nonchalant about our sacred responsibility to glorify God and to love God and to surrender our wills to God, to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus, to grow deeper in our holiness and loving one another. Jesus has reconciled all things and he asks us to join him in that. He has made peace on our behalf through the blood of his cross. And although we are born alienated and hostile in mind, although we do engage in deeds that are not of God, Yet Jesus went to the cross to reconcile us through his death so he might present us beyond reproach. 
It is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that's the solution to everything in life. And we are to live that out so that in everything he might be preeminent. Like toddlers entering preschool who learn to cope with the rude awakening, they're not in the center of the universe anymore. Uh, God's word confronts us here. This earth we live on is not the center of reality. The center of reality is in God. Scientists, scientists continue to hold on to a theory that in the beginning the universe started with the Big Bang. Yet the Bible clearly tells us that it all began simply with a big word by a big God. The British scientist Stephen Hawking once said, the eventual goal of all science is to provide a single theory that describes the whole universe. We have a single word, Jesus. That's it. The resurrection victory of God in Christ is the ground of our fabric of all history in all of our lives. In spite of the appearances today that our world has gone wonky, God is still at work for his glory, for his glory and our good. In a world that seems to be suffocated with self-centeredness and division and hatred and violence, we belong to Christ. We have a place in history. Jesus is the center of who we are, the origin of who we are, who we are. He's our destiny. We are meant to be here. We are meant to be here for a glorious purpose. God has not left the world to be on its own. He's in charge, and he's charging towards the fulfillment of his glory. God's purpose in Christ for the whole creation is to be reconciled too. Not just us, but the whole world, everything. Sin makes a shambles of that harmony. Sin battles against the restoration work of God. And as sinners, we are not victims. We are perpetrators in that battle. The theme of human rebellion and sin is an unbroken scarlet thread that weaves its way through the Bible and finds its end at the cross. So for us, it's at the foot of the cross that we either live and grow or we die. We have been created and called for a great purpose, brothers and sisters, a great glorious glorious work of God to Christ's preeminent supremacy over our lives. Some years ago, early in the initial days of the war in Iraq, high-ranking generals declared that they had achieved air supremacy over the country. And they boasted that they controlled the airspace and could shoot, do, shoot down anything they wanted to, whether it was a plane or a pigeon. I remember thinking, that's not really true. It was Jesus who's in charge of the air and the water and the land. Just shook my head. It's, not, it's Jesus, not the armies of the world that are going to be ever supreme in this life. And if any of us sitting here this morning are basking in our independence and don't believe that Jesus is preeminent over all things, you are wildly delusional. No one can diminish the supremacy of Christ. It would be like just writing a, the word darkness on paper and saying the sun doesn't shine anymore. The real question here is not how, if Jesus is supreme. The question is, are we going to recognize that and surrender to that?
and embrace that and surrender to it in a way that gives God glory. The crucifixion was evocative. It was an evocative Roman power uh, and delight. It seemed like the, I'm trying to, how am I going to say this? The cross for Caesar was a, was an image of his power. So for Jesus to go to the cross, look what, made, look what uh, a fool he made of Caesar at some point. The preeminent power of the cross is not larger than the preeminent power of Jesus Christ. It's by renouncing our own power, brothers and sisters, that we can be saved. It's by the power of God is unleashed in our lives when we say we don't have that power. When we submit to God in his supremacy, it's a display of our sacrifice, of our human weakness. But the reality is what does Paul hear from Jesus? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in he is our weakness. Jesus' surrender and willingness to embrace death for us shows the supremacy of who he is. Here's the bottom line. True followers of Jesus Christ don't wear rabbit feet around their necks. We, don't, we walk under ladders freely. We break mirrors without fear because we believe Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is not one God of men. He is the only God. He reigns over all things. C.S. Lewis once wrote, there's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch and every split second is claimed by Jesus Christ and then counterclaimed by Satan. Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? To which Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth, you shall bound in heaven, Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In 1 Corinthians 2, the Apostle Paul declared, For I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. As fallen sinners who have been reconciled back to God for a glorious redemptive purpose, as a redeemed member of the new creation of Jesus, let us also commit ourselves to knowing nothing, nothing, nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And in everything that he might be then preeminent. Jesus is preeminently supreme over everything. Amen? Amen. Father, we, we praise you that, that Jesus is our everything. And in a world, Lord, where we have so many ideas and distractions and pleasures and in the midst of a broken world as we, we struggle along in our weakness, Lord, you are the perfect one for us to bring us back home to God. 
And we ask, Lord, in these days ahead that, again, we would be a people of God who would see Jesus in us by the things not just we, we do, but what we say and how we live. And most of all, Lord, how we uh, surrender ourselves to you. So we bless you and love you. And even on this day, Lord, we give you great glory. And all God's people said, Amen. <laughs>